pray. God, we thank you for this opportunity to come and hear your word and pray that as your people we would receive it as such. And having received it, that we would live in light of it. In Christ we pray. Amen. I invite you this morning to open in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, will be beginning in verse 12. If you did not bring a Bible and would like to follow along with the pew Bibles that are tucked up under the chairs in front of you, you can find it on page 500. And 53. I wonder if uh, you ever find yourself walking around the world in which you live just kind of being randomly curious about stuff that you see. Like, where did such a thing come from? I hope you do. If you don't, I would encourage you this week to just walk around and just wonder, like, where, who thought of this? Like, take merry-go-rounds, for instance, or carousels, if you will. Like, who thought of something like that? Maybe you thought that, maybe you never did. Whether you ever thought it or not, you're about to learn about carousels this morning. What seems to have happened is that in the medieval period, knights would run around in circles tossing balls to each other because there wasn't much to do in the medieval period, and apparently this is a hard thing to do. Uh, then they kind of figured out that if you ride around in a circle, it's a lot easier to train yourself with uh, a lance, which is what people joust with, and so then they would run around and hit things with it and get more and more accurate by kind of going around in a circle. Once jousting uh, stopped being a popular sport because people figured out that hitting each other with sticks on horses was a bad idea, much better activities to do in the world, then people still like to come up with cool things to do on horses, so they would take the same lance but try and collect hoops hanging in the air going around in circles as a feat of agility and, I don't know, you know, people used to be real bored. From there, it seems as if people go, I know, this would be a wonderful thing for children. Let's develop a ride. And so they developed this kind of circular thing. The guy who we have uh, to really thank for the modern day carousels, we know is a guy named Frederick Savage. He was kind of the wonderkind of the carousel movement. Now, admittedly, there were not a whole lot of people that were famous in the merry-go-round world, but this guy was a genius. He was the one who, for example, came up with the horses that go up and down as the carousel goes around and it goes up and down. Or he also had another invention, which sadly has gone out of style, which is the horse that was just connected to chains, and as the carousel sped up, the horse just would swing out wildly. That was radically dangerous, and so they ended that horse, Um, but he had the fantastic idea. I would have loved to see such a thing. Now you go, okay, cool, Jeremy, that was something. Why go into all of this? Well, because I think that a merry-go-round is a great illustration for life. Uh, It's fun and all, especially when you're young, but you find yourself kind of asking, is this it? You know, it's like when you're seven, all you want to do is just keep going on the merry-go-round. 
And then when you're 12, you like go around it once, right? You smile at the camera. Your parents are taking pictures of you. You're like, I can't believe I'm sitting on an elephant right now. What am I doing with my life? And when you're 17, you're way too cool for school. You're like, not happening. And then when you get to be like 25, you're like, maybe, right? <laughs> then you have your own kids and you get on the carousel ride because you're doing it for the children, but you're loving life, right? You be an old person, and you're like, it's creepy, I can't go on the ride with the little children unless I have grandchildren, then you're back on the ride, and you're like, okay, this is cool again. But still, it's like, you just go around in circles, and you get off, and you go, okay, that's something, and you watch other people go around on it, but it doesn't really go anywhere. It's not like life, you just kind of, is this any, are we going anywhere? Is this going to do anything? I think fewer books are more helpful in confronting those who have these kinds of major questions about life in the book of Ecclesiastes. And last week we entered the kind of shocking and sobering reality that is the wonderful world of Ecclesiastes. We met a man who calls himself the preacher, a man who is bold enough to say what most of us are thinking on a regular basis, which is, life is mysterious, enigmatic. It, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense all the time. Just what is it that we get out of life? That declaration and that question are really what shapes the entirety of the book. Instead of giving us an answer, the preacher looks at the fixed order of the world and shows how relatively meaningless we are. Think about it. The sun does not care if you build a business. The wind does not care if you get a new job. The river doesn't care if you have a baby. You live, you die, and the world keeps on turning. This leads to weariness on the part of humans. There just isn't anything truly new in the world. No one will ultimately remember us, and any progress that we might find ourselves accomplishing in this world will not last. In light of all this, we might look at our lives and go, well, then everything's meaningless. But remember that the writer doesn't believe that the world is meaningless. It's just enigmatic. It's just mysterious. It seems like it should make sense. And sometimes it seems like it makes sense. But all too often it seems like it just kind of doesn't. So what are we to do in such a world? How do we live life well even though so often it seems like we're on nothing but a merry-go-round? How do we find meaning in life? Well, I think today we hear an answer to these kinds of questions. In the book of Ecclesiastes, beginning in chapter 1, verse 12, and reading through chapter 2, Verse 26, hear the word of the Lord this morning. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. Behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? 
I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them, all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. That I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can man do that comes after the king? Only what has already been done before. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then I have, been, have I been so very wise? I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be a master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man for all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This section breaks up into five parts, and carrying the merry-go-round illustration forward, I've divided to, or decided to divide the text like this. I think the first thing we see in verses 1 through 12, or sorry, of 12 through 18 of chapter 1, is the first horse, if you will, which is knowledge. Uh, the second horse is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and this would be the horse of stuff. 
Uh, the, the third horse is wise living in verses 12 through 17 of chapter 2. And horse number four would be hard work in verses 18 through 23. And lastly, I think what we do, what we have from the preacher is getting a perspective of the ride that we're actually on in verses 24 through 26. Here's the main idea I want us all to keep in mind as we go along this morning. God's creation is a gift to be enjoyed, not a thing that gives us meaning. Once again, God's creation is a gift to be enjoyed, not a thing that gives us meaning. My hope is that as a result of our time spent in this text this morning, we will learn to see our world rightly, enjoy it properly, and worship God joyfully. So, horse number one, knowledge. The preacher, we are told, is on a serious quest to figure out life. In verse 13, we are told that he has applied his heart to all that is done under the sun. Well, the heart comes up over and over again in this section. And when you think about heart, you should, in this passage, you should not be thinking about the muscle that is in your chest that pumps blood to the extremities of your body. Instead, you should think about the core and center of your being, the very kind of every, the essence of what you are. That is what the writer means by heart. And he's applied it to all that is under the sun, everything that exists here on earth. This is, as if you will, the first horse he has chosen to ride around on, and this horse is named Knowledge. It's, it's that big and noble horse, right? The one you kind of run to first, the one that moves very slowly up and down, kind of regally. The one that you're not even all that amped to be on, you just make fun of everybody else for not having gotten to. The one you ride higher than everybody else, it seems like a great horse to be on. Knowledge. Who doesn't love knowledge? But this leads the preacher to a rather stark conclusion in the second part of verse 13. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Are you allowed to say that in the Bible? Right? Like, think of that. That, that sounds wrong. He can't possibly mean that. Some commentators are so shocked by this verse that they kind of explain it away. Now, everybody else calls them cheaters because it's very clear that this is what the writer actually says. How are we supposed to understand something like this? Well, to answer that question, I think we have to continue to read in this section. And for example, verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. You see, friends, the world is very evidently broken, bent twisted, lacking. Isn't that true? Like even in your best moments in life, isn't there just something off about it? If nothing else, because you're like, this is the best moment I've ever had in my life, but every other moment hasn't been like this, and yeah, tomorrow probably won't be this way. It's just not perfect. Christian or not, we would consider delusional the one that said, yeah, the world I live in is perfect. We would recommend them psychiatric care. It's not perfect. It might be better than it used to be, at least in your perception of the world, but it's not perfect. This reality sends the preacher on a quest to figure out all of life 
for himself to plumb the mysteries of life. Notice verse 16 and 17. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. My heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also was but a striving after when three times the writer talks about searching all this with all his heart. All of who he is strains to understand the world he lives in. I wonder if you can identify with that. Just trying to figure out life. But here's the reality. There is no bottom to the rabbit hole. There is no figuring out all of the life that you live. There is no truth to thinking that if we just knew more, we could figure it out and find meaning in our lives. The problem with the preacher is not that he thought about life or rested with meaning. The problem is that he did so all by himself. Apart from God and apart from anybody else, he sought to know it all for himself. Notice that the only role that God has to play in this search with all his heart for the meaning of life The only role that God has to play is as the accused standing in the jury box. Verse 13, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. The preacher is speaking to us as if he's pointing to God saying, this God just has given us an unhappy life to live. Yet, interestingly enough, the preacher never seems to take that God into account in the world in which he lives. Friend, if this is you this morning, trying to figure out life for yourself, trying to convince yourself that if you just knew a little bit more, life would make sense, then here is my grand piece of advice for you this morning. Give up. Give up. Because you will not figure it all out. To seek for meaning in knowledge will only lead to heartache, pain, and suffering. Jeremy, how do you know that? Well, two things. The first one is just experientially true. I have spent the vast majority of my life trying to figure it all out. And it doesn't work. I notice that even in the preacher's Life story, verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This would be kind of my life verse, right? If, if you are wondering what verse to put in your bathroom this week, you know, to kind of just give you some inspiration, put this one on the mirror and trip out on this one all week long because it's a good one to keep in mind. For knowledge is not going to give you meaning in life. Well, if not knowledge, then what? We move to horse number two, stuff in chapter two, verses one through 11. The preacher here is guiding us along in a journey. And you might get a little suspicious, right? The guy goes, okay, 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 fine. It's not the big horse that moves real slow or whatever. Here's the horse. This horse will make it. Maybe the meaning will be found in stuff. It's interesting, this progression. If The last horse was a rabid search for knowledge. This one is essentially a giving over of oneself to find meaning in just the pleasures of life. You just squeeze meaning out of everything that you amass for yourself. This would be the horse that swings on the chain, 
right? This horse would be painted with an American flag and would have consumerism written across its forehead. You know the horse. Looks real fun to ride, but it's kind of dangerous, but you want to get on it, right? Lee Greenwood plays above the speaker, proud to be an American, and you're like, yeah, this horse is wild, and it keeps spinning out of control. But notice that the Preacher, he does not just kind of portray himself as an angsty teenager who just gives himself over to nothingness or even wild self-abandonment. This, friends, is a dedicated and serious attempt with all that he is to find meaning in what he has. He's tried pretty much everything in life. We have to give the preacher at least an A for effort in trying. He's tried alcohol, verse 2. That doesn't work. Neither does building all manner of things in verses 4 through 6. Buildings and gardens, pools to water the gardens. Slaves don't cut it. And neither do a ton of livestock in verse 7. What about money? Verse 8, not a chance. Singers? Verse 8, forget about it. How about sex? No, not even that would give somebody meaning in life. A summary of all this is really kind of wrapped up in verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Notice that the preacher is trying his hardest, using the wisdom that he had. Now this might sound crazy to you until you reflect on the time and place in which you live. So much of the wisdom of our day and age is that what we lack in order to be happy is something else. If we, if we just had X, then we would be happy. The preacher is still using wisdom. It's simply wisdom wrongly oriented. It's wisdom that stems from trying to figure out the world for oneself. And here's the real danger. When we get X, it works for a minute. Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Friends, here is the most insidious and dangerous and destructive and deadly thing about consumerism. It works for a minute. Think about it. You get that new phone? That new phone is awesome for a minute. You move into that new house, real cool until something breaks. You, you, you buy that new piece of clothing until you wash it on hot instead of cold, or your husband happens to throw it at the dryer when it's just supposed to be hung out over something. Not speaking from personal experience, just talk to other people and know this to be the case. Friends, our world trains us to be adulterous, always swapping what we have for something else. It doesn't even say that it's going to be better. It's just going to be different. And we're convinced that it will be different, and then it is different, and so it works for a minute. But at the end of the day, is in verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Friends, your stuff will never make you happy. Give up trying to find meaning in what you have. 
It will only drive you, like the preacher, to despair. So if meaning isn't to be found in knowledge or in stuff, then what? Well, we move to the third horse. This is the wise living horse in verse 12 through 17. Our suspicion might be growing as the preacher leads us on, but this horse seems to make sense, especially getting off that wild and crazy horse with the chains and everything. We feel like we're about to lose our lives. It's fun but dangerous. This would be the horse that doesn't move anywhere. It's just stuck, right? It's solid. It's the sure bet horse. It's the wise living horse. You just lived smart enough well, then everything would be okay. The preacher considers life and comes to a perfectly rational and simple conclusion in verses 13 and 14. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. This seems to be a self-evident truth. If you pursue wisdom... That's the smarter path. It will ordinarily go better for you. In fact, to say that that is a wrong notion is to show yourself to be the fool, to show that you actually don't see the world as it is supposed to be. It seems that this wise way of living might actually get us somewhere. We just need to be stable in life and make good decisions. You know, this is, by the way, just so we're all clear, this is the minimalist in life. I'm just going to get away from consumerism. I'm just going to strip it all down to the basics. This is the vegan, who's a vegan not for ethical reasons, just because they want to live to 140 by eating salad. Or this is the person who makes a 10-year plan and doesn't laugh at themselves when they're done with it because this is the way their life is going to be. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of this. It's just thinking that if you do these things, then your life will have meaning. The problem is really wrapped up in the second part of verse 14. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Friends, check it out. Newsflash, we're all going to die. Didn't know if you know that this morning. Take that with you. That's a free point. You're going to die. At some point. And the reality is that wise living does not necessarily lead to a long life. Let me give you two examples of this. Take Richard Overton, a personal hero of mine, the oldest man living in the United States of America currently, 111, almost 112 years old. He's also the world's oldest living World War II veteran. He was asked a few years ago, How is it that you live so long? And so it's very simple. Besides talking about things like he took aspirin on a daily basis, he said, I drink whiskey every morning, and I smoke 12 cigars a day. God bless that man. Almost 112 years old. Now compare this to somebody like J.I. Rodale. If you go like, well, who the, who's that guy? He's the reason why you use the word organic in regular conversations to try and make yourself sound cool. He's the one who started the movement. He was on the Dick Cavett show a few years ago, a few decades ago, actually. And on the show, he's talking about just the benefits of organic and everything. And he said, I've never felt better in my life. I am sure that I'm going to live to 100 years old. And on the show, he had a heart attack and died. 
The episode was never broadcast, but it lives on as a legend. And friend, we're all going to die. And no, no amount of wise living can save you from death, nor can it give you meaning in life. Listen, the one who dies doing the most push-ups still dies. Now, that doesn't mean that doing push-ups is a bad idea. What it does mean is, is that you can never find meaning in living a clean, healthy, trying to build it up as a meaningful life. Sell everything you have. Be as wise as you want to be. It will not work. It's not just a bad way to live your life. Notice verse 17. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after wind. Friend, to try and find meaning in life through a wise lifestyle will literally drive you to hate the very life that you live. Well, so if meaning isn't found in knowledge and stuff or wise living, then what? This is where we move to horse number four, which is hard work in verses 18 through 23. The thing I, I, I like about this in comparison to the illustration is this would be the horse that has the out of order sign on it, right? Nobody even gets on this horse. Notice what the preacher says. I, I hated all my toil with which I toiled on his son. He doesn't even pretend. He's just like, yeah, and when it comes to work, yeah, work is garbage. Try to find meaning in your job. Good Luck. What's the major problem with the work that we do? Well, according to the preacher here in 18 and 19, it's pretty funny. Seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. I, I'm just going to, he might even mess it up. I don't know. I'm going to work all my whole life. Try and construct meaning, die, pass it off this joker, and he's probably just going to ruin everything. This will drive somebody to despair very quick. It does this writer, verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Add to that the fact that work is just plain hard. This is true of all of our work, friends. Sure, some jobs are better than others, but only the fool would say they're perfectly satisfied in their work. This is true even if you think you've found your calling, right? I'm always suspicious when somebody says that. I think that's a, somebody trying to say, like, I'm going to quit pretty soon, but I'm trying to pretend that this job is really everything for me. But that's just because I'm a cynic. I'm sure that people have found things in their lives that really kind of make them, they're like, this is great. This is what I was born to do. But even then, still, there's still bad days at work. Nobody has perfect days at work. For most of us, it's not true that we can do every, anything that we want in life. So parents, please don't tell your children that because, you know, it's a lie and we'll drive them to believe that lie and then lead them to be discouraged about the world they live in. Oof. Again, personal experience. But even if we could do anything we wanted, even if you got your dream job, friend, guess what? You still got to wake up tomorrow morning and go to it. 
and then you'll be called in on the day you don't want to go. And your boss will make you do something you don't want to do. And your coworkers will be annoying. Friend, no job is perfect. Knowledge, stuff, wise living, hard work. The preacher has tried it all. There's no meaning to be found in any of it. What is a human to do? Well, this is where the preacher goes with it in verses 24 through 26. I'll read it again. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. You, you might be confused hearing this section, especially hearing all that has come before it. Here, the, the whole section kind of takes this massive turn. How can this possibly be, you might ask, given all that the preacher has said up until this point, and the key lies in what the preacher has finally, at the very end of this journey, taken into account, namely God. Apart from being the accused party early on in the preacher's quest, God has not made an appearance at all in the preacher's quest until the end. It would be easy to shake our heads in pity at the preacher, but the reality is, is that this is the story of our lives all too often. You get off one horse just to jump on another horse, never asking if the merry-go-round is actually what is supposed to give you meaning in life. What the preacher does here is remove us, as it were, from the merry-go-round for a minute to take the whole ride into perspective and the one who created the ride to begin with. It's only when we take a step back that we see that all of life is a gift from God. And it's only when we give up trying to find meaning in the things in this life that we begin to see both the things of this life rightly as well as the God who made everything rightly. You see, merry-go-rounds don't get people anywhere. But that's not what merry-go-rounds are supposed to do. Merry-go-rounds are supposed to give people enjoyment. To look to the merry-go-round for meaning in life would be ridiculous. But the same goes for those of us that would seek for meaning in life from wisdom, from stuff, from wise living, or from work. It's only when we see these things for what they are and enjoy them for what they are and look to God for meaning in life that we can truly enjoy where we are, here and now, in this life and no other because this is the only life that we have. Friends, you can long for another life. You can long to be on another horse, but the reality is is that, well, this is the horse that you're on. Enjoy the life that you currently live because it's the only life you will ever have. You will never have this moment that you currently have right now ever again. This will be part of the past, that which you reflect on. The proof that enjoyment comes in seeing God for who He is and what all the stuff is that God has made for what it is. The proof comes from one who is much wiser than the preacher. From God come in human flesh from Jesus Christ Himself. This morning we read a 
very famous and important section from Jesus that we'll read again, seeing how important it actually is, in the book of Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, in the middle of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, the beginning of the book of Matthew, we read this section beginning in verse 25 of chapter 6. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need all of them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Friends, this is the most penetrating question from Jesus in this section. Verse 25, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, I'm sure that every one of you in here, Christian or not, would go like, well, of course. But immediately upon answering the question that way, then two more questions arise. Number one, then why often do we so live as if that's all there is to life? To which we all kind of just shrug and, I don't know. The second question is, if life is more than the things of this life, then what is the meaning of life? You see, friends, every single one of you, Christian and not, has to answer that question this morning. What is the meaning of life? Or, if you want to put it in a simpler way, why go on living? real question. Think about it. There is likely a lifetime of hurt and disappointment and failure ahead of you. Not the most encouraging news in the world, but it is true. Why continue on? What's the point of living? Jesus gives the right answer to the question. One that I think we all ought to take into consideration. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I wonder if you know what Jesus means. So much is wrapped up in that phrase, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It would be impossible to explain it all this morning, but I think here's one thing that Jesus means. Jesus means to tell us that in the kingdom of God is where meaning is found. That kingdom came in Jesus himself. He is the king who brings that kingdom. Now, you might ask yourself the question, Jeremy, what is the kingdom of God? And the best way I know how to put it, I completely stole from somebody else, and it's this. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place living under God's rule and reign. Who are God's people? Those who belong to God through Jesus Christ. How do you get in Jesus Christ? Well, entrusting Him for what salvation? Why would we ever have to 
find salvation in him. Very simply because we all, like rebels, have tried to figure out life by ourselves and in the process only, if anything, accused God as the preacher did at the beginning and tried to find meaning for ourselves, rebelling against God at every stage, trying to set ourselves up as the kings and queens of this world. Because God is just and is the king, then he is the one who proclaims a sentence of punishment on all who would reject him trying to follow their own ways. Because God is just, he'll carry out his punishments. The most shocking news is because God is also just, he, he sent his only son in order to save us from ourselves. Jesus comes and what he tells us isn't anything really radically new. Seek first the kingdom of God is not a new statement. It just comes in a new form of God himself telling us, do what I've always called my people to do. And in that Jesus, having sought the kingdom of God for his entire life, then dies for us, saving us in the process if we will trust in him. So the greatest act of wisdom this morning, the first act of seeking the kingdom of God this morning is finding salvation in Jesus and not in your own wisdom or your own right living or your job or your stuff. It's in finding ourselves brought into this kingdom of God and given all that we could ever imagine that we find meaning in life. But not only that, friends. See, the crazy part about this is that as God's people, we then live according to God's righteousness as found in his word. You and I do this together each and every day, hearing God's word here on Sundays and at other places and trying to figure out what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to live rightly? And as we do so, we learn something. that since God gives us meaning, we don't have to find meaning for ourselves. So your lame job is all right. Because it just pays the bills. That's all it's got to do. Your stuff, yeah, it's kind of broken and your cell phone kind of moves slow and people make fun of your shoes, but it's all right because you got shoes on. It's okay. It'll, it'll make sense. Why? Because if you get other shoes, they'll just get messed up eventually. And then even when you get new shoes, it's just shoes. try to live rightly, not because it's going to give you meaning in life, just because it's a wise thing to do. You seek after knowledge because you desire to know the world that you live in, not because you think that if you just get smart enough, you'll figure it all out. Friends, this is the shocking thing about being a Christian. You actually end up enjoying the world more, not less, because it doesn't bear the weight of giving you meaning, which is nothing that it could ever possibly do. Friends, it is only when we see the merry-go-round rightly for what it is that the ride becomes bearable and even enjoyable. It doesn't really get us anywhere. It doesn't have to. Because that's not what it's meant to do. All that we are called to do is enjoy the ride for what it is and worship God along the way for who He is. To seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Not in order that we would become part of that kingdom, but because we have been made part of that kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the example and testimony of the preacher. We pray that we would be wise and pay attention. We pray that we would 
seek after meaning, not in the things of this world, but in being found in you through your Son, Jesus Christ. May God, for those who might be here this morning who are not Christians, I pray that this message would be an encouragement and a real hope to them that they would give up trying to find meaning in the things of this life and instead find meaning in the one who made everything. And God, for those who are Christians this morning who have found themselves trying to find meaning in the stuff of this life, I pray that this morning would be a gracious reminder of the fact that in you there is all the meaning we ever need and will ever have. Lord, we pray that our contentment in this life and having been made new in Jesus and having found meaning in Him would be a bold and provocative witness to the world in which we live that longs to believe that if we just try hard enough, we can find meaning in this life. God, so many of us know that that is not true. We pray that you would give us opportunities to tell others graciously that we can give up trying to find meaning in the world and just enjoy it because the world can never give us what we so often seek in it. And we thank you that there is not meaningless or despair to life, but real hope found not in ourselves or own efforts, but in Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.